Let me transport you for a moment to the 1840s. We're just upstream from the Niagara Falls, beneath us, the rapids. Opposite us, the bank on the other side of the river. And between that bank and ours, 800 feet, nearly a quarter of a kilometer. Here's the question. How do you build a bridge to the other side? The water flows too quickly and the drop from the waterfall is too deep to risk going across by boat. Try to build stepping stones and they'll wash away. Try to fly and you'd need a time machine because you're about 60 years too early for the Wright brothers. Well, this was the problem faced by a man named Charles Ellett Jr. He was an excellent engineer and, as it turns out, an outside-the-box thinker. The solution to his problem came in the form of a 16-year-old boy named Homan Walsh. What young Master Walsh had in his favour was that he was a very good kite flyer. In fact, Charles Ellett Jr. had organised a competition where lots of aspiring kite flyers were invited to try to land a line across this 800-foot gap. It just so happens that 16-year-old Homan Walsh was the first to succeed. He earned himself $5, and Charles Ellett Jr. could begin to build his bridge. You see, once a single line, even from a kite, had crossed the chasm and was secure on the other side, he could use it to run a heavier rope across. And then another with more and more weight, he could run some sturdy cables and over time, he could build a bridge. Ellett himself was the first man to cross it in a a little basket that was suspended from the cables. Because a teenage boy flew a kite, a man was able to cross the Niagara Falls for the very first time. Now, I should admit that the bridge wasn't all that effective. You did have to cross it in a basket, and it did collapse after five years. People hadn't really figured out the physics of a suspension bridge at that point in time. But, but, but here's my point, and here's why I mention it today. The connection is what matters. And it looks feeble to start with. But as it is strengthened and built up over time, you realize you can put your weight on it. And it will hold you up. And it will get you across to safety on the other side. Over these past couple of weeks, we've started looking at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. If you've been with us, you'll know that we've done some detail in the first two chapters. I hope that's been fruitful. I think it's been foundational. But today, I want to change our tactics slightly. Instead of following Paul's argument line by line in the passage we've got before us today, I want to take it as a whole and to observe simply the mood and the message. Because I think this section speaks into something close to the centre of Christian living. And if you'll allow me to push my analogy once more, it's something like this. The gospel has reached you. It seems weak and feeble, but your faith is being strengthened. 
And it can and it will withstand the weight of everything that is set against it. That's where we're going. So let's look at it together. Uh, And first, the mood. The mood. The typical New Testament letters begin with some kind of greeting and then they move on to some kind of praise and thanksgiving and then they continue into some kind of doctrinal teaching. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, well, typical New Testament scholars, nobody can agree where the thanksgiving section ends. Paul can't help repeating himself as he praises this group of young-in-the-faith Christian converts. He praises God for them. Chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Chapter 2 and verse 13, And we also thank God continually because When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? These Thessalonians have given Paul a lot to be thankful for. And as we saw last week in chapter 2, Paul is so thankful for the Thessalonians because of his great love for the Thessalonians. He wrote of their relationship in the warmest of family times. And where our passage begins here in chapter 2, verse 17, he's at it again. Uh, Listen to this, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Paul has had to leave Thessalonica and to leave the Thessalonians behind. But for him, that was heartbreaking. He was, I suppose you could say, homesick to be back with them. And that word there of being orphaned, it can mean both a child who has lost their parents and a parent who has been separated from their children. It's the closest tie of love and dependence and devotion which has been torn apart by some terrible circumstance. And Paul is at pains to say he longs to be with them intensely, passionately. Well, we'll see in just a moment why they've been separated for a time. But glance down a little further into chapter 3, where we get more of the mood of this passage. Timothy has been to visit and has returned to Paul with news. And you get the sense that it was a dual-purpose trip. Paul wanted to encourage the Thessalonians in their walk with the Lord, but he also wanted to hear news of them. And he found himself encouraged. He wasn't a big worrier, Paul. Have you ever noticed that about him? He finds himself in some sticky situations and he tends to take it on the chin. Even when he's distressed and disgruntled with what's going on in a certain church somewhere, he tends to be a man of prayer and action rather than worry and concern. If he was ever going to worry about anybody, there's every reason why it should be the Thessalonians. 
They were young in their faith, remember, and had seen their mentors smuggled out of the city, so they were forced to fend for themselves. How would they fare when life's challenges came up against them? How would they stand in the face of opposition if it came? Well, Paul has spoken of the word that they heard and received. And here he recounts the good news about their faith and love in verse 6, which Timothy has been witness to. Or, verse 7, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. That is the mood of this passage. It is one of warmth in encouragement. It is seeing the gospel at work in fellow believers and finding strength and sustenance for ourselves in their witness. That can look like lots of different things for us. It can look like the Christian believer who is facing great struggle and suffering in life, but clinging to Christ in the midst of it growing in Christ in the midst of it. It's the pain of loss and bereavement of sickness in in that person or their loved ones. And as they have stood firm on the rock that is Christ in the midst of that trial, we have looked on at them and been encouraged in our faith. It's why Johnny Erickson Tada's books have been read by so many people. A woman whose young life changed dramatically when a diving accident left her paralyzed from the neck down and and whose life has been a ministry to the grace and kindness of God. In one of her famous quotations, she says of God, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. And as he holds her, and as she clings to him, a great many have been brought to faith and strengthened in their faith through her words and her witness. There is an example of someone who, if you like, has helped to run some stronger cables across the gorge. And it helps us to have confidence that we can carry over that gap and into safety ourselves. It might look different. It might be the Christian who stands up for what is right despite the cost or the risk of cost to them. I think of the friend who, on a matter of conscience, felt she could no longer work for an organisation whose leaders had values that she felt compromised her as a Christian. It was a personally costly thing to do to leave, but her conscience wouldn't allow her to stay. And it challenged me, because I could think of opportunities that I'd had to speak up in unjust situations I was aware of where there was no real cost to me, and I just couldn't be bothered to do so. I was challenged and convicted by that. But so too was I encouraged, encouraged by her boldness and her faith, encouraged by her love of the other, which meant she wouldn't compromise with benefiting from harm. Above all, encouraged by her commitment to Christ, 
that meant she would follow him wherever he called, even if it meant going through a narrow gate and not a wide one, down a narrow path and not a broad one. That is what happens with the gospel at work. It changes the way we live. It trains us to depend on Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. It moulds us into people who seek his kingdom and righteousness first. And when we see that in others, the gospel at work, it warms us, encourages us, strengthens us, helps us to stand firm. It shows us that we can put our weight on the gospel and it will hold us up and carry us across. That's the mood of this passage. But as we begin to tie together the loose ends of what we've been seeing here, let's think about the message. The message. As ever, it pays to do a bit of detective work in reading between the lines. At the end of chapter 2 shows Paul's great desire to go to Thessalonica and to meet again with this church in person. He says there in verse 17, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. And then in verse 18, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. I think it's fair to assume that the Thessalonians had wanted Paul to return and had asked him to return and had expected him to return even. So he goes to great lengths to stress how keen he has been to return, but Satan has blocked his way. Now, we don't know what that block was. Some speculate that it might have been illness that kept Paul away. Others suggest, I think probably more likely, that it was a legal difficulty. He was too high profile. He simply wasn't welcome there. And it would have been difficult for him to come back, given the circumstances in which he left in the first place. Whatever the problem, in human terms, Paul is quite ready to see a spiritual purpose behind it. Now we've got to be careful here. Some Christians have a habit of diagnosing a spiritual attack every time they don't get their own way with something. The devil isn't a convenient excuse for things not working out according to our plans. But the opposite is true too. The devil is real and he is at work in the world seeking to disrupt and derail the growth of God's kingdom. Preventing an apostle from going to build up a church with his ministry is exactly the kind of thing the devil will occupy himself with. And you get the sense that he's been at work in Thessalonica too. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul explains that he sent Timothy to encourage the church so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. He's more specific in verse In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labours might have been in vain. So as Paul and his gang of church-planting missionaries found themselves facing the heat of persecution, 
they feared that the devil would be at work among the Thessalonians trying to rob them of their faith. If they were unsettled by the trials that they saw in verse 3, they may be tempted to lose heart and lose faith in verse 5. And you can almost hear the accusations, can't you? If this God is so powerful, why do his followers suffer? If this Jesus really is Lord, why do those who call on his name face more trouble rather than less? And I suppose they must have asked the big question of Christian discipleship, is it really worth it? If this is what comes from being a Christian, do I want to go on with it? Can I keep at it? Persecution is the particular problem in focus here. And maybe for us, that seems a distant problem. But being marked out as different for the sake of faith in Christ is a very common feeling. Being seen as strange or of holding strange views or of being treated with a degree of suspicion about your motives and your relationships with others, it might feel low level most of the time, but it's something that many of us would recognize. There is a shift taking place in culture. Some would say it's already well underway, where what were considered old Christian virtues are increasingly considered dangerous or even harmful. That will prove unsettling for many of us. It may prove tempting. Think of the former Liberal Democrat Party leader Tim Farron, a committed Christian with what I suppose you would call conservative theological convictions. He resigned as his party leader because, in his words, I have found myself torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. A better, wiser person than me may have been able to deal with this more successfully, to have remained faithful to Christ while leading a political party in the current environment. To be a political leader, especially of a progressive liberal party in 2017, and to live as a committed Christian, to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching has felt impossible for me. These are the kinds of tensions we must live with as Christians in a world that does not recognize Christ as Lord. Increasingly, the kind of tensions we're going to find on our front lines, in our workplaces and places where we serve. The danger is that we look on with despair or with dismay or ultimately even with defeat. Unsettled at first, tempted next, the risk is that we just give up. Stop seeking Christ, stop living for him, stop speaking of him. That's why the message here is so important for us today. Because Paul is emphatic. These trials are not evidence that the gospel doesn't work. No, quite the opposite. These trials are the context of the gospel being seen at work in the Thessalonians and in the world. It's why Paul is so thankful for what he hears about the Thessalonians. It is evidence of gospel growth. Chapter 3, verse 7, once again, Therefore, brothers and sisters, 
in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? You almost expect it to be the other way around. You almost expect the Thessalonians to be writing to Paul saying, we know you're suffering for the gospel, but keep going, keep persevering. We're so grateful for your witness. But it isn't that way. Paul says in the midst of his distress, he is encouraged by their standing firm. You see, as they go about their ministry, hearing God's word, serving the Lord in their context, loving their neighbors, sharing their faith, faithfully fulfilling all those marks of church family life, as they go about their ministry, Paul sees the gospel at work in them. He is encouraged as they stand firm. And he writes to tell them that they can be encouraged as he stands firm too. In distress, yes. Under persecution, yes. But mightily effective under God in the advance of his kingdom. The gospel is cross-shaped. It is in weakness and through humility that we see the strength and power of God at work through Christ. And while events that knock us down are not welcome and can be intended by the devil for harm, so too and how much more does the Lord work them for good? And as we see the gospel at work in others, in those ways, we can be encouraged in our faith and stand firm. That's what Johnny Erickson Tata witnesses to. Another great line from her, she says, The weaker I am, the harder I must lean on God's grace. The harder I lean on him, the stronger I discover him to be and the bolder my testimony to his grace. It is, if you like, seeing in others those cables run across the chasm. As we see the gospel at work in others, our faith is strengthened, and we can know all the more with confidence. It will hold us, and the Lord will carry us to the other side through his gospel of grace, into safety. Shall I pray now that we will know that testimony to grace, even in the midst of trial? Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mood of this passage, of the great love that Paul had for these Thessalonians and their love of him. And we pray that we would be shaped and moulded by those great virtues. We pray too for the message here and ask for your help in taking it on board for ourselves, that we may see in others the work of the gospel and be encouraged ourselves that you will help us to stand firm. And as we do, we pray, Father, we would be a great witness through our words and our deeds to the truth of the gospel, that others too may be built up 
and encouraged to stand firm for themselves. So be at work at us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.